Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books in the American West, a channel on the New Books Network of Podcasts. I am Stephen Hausman. I am an assistant professor in the history department at the University of St. Thomas in St. Paul, Minnesota, and I'm your host for today's interview. And for this episode, I am speaking with Dr. Erica Basumek, who is a professor of history at the University of Texas at Austin. Uh, Dr. Basumek is the creator of the digital history educational software Cleovis and is the author of the new book, The Foundations of Glen Canyon Dam, Infrastructure of Dispossession on the Colorado Plateau, which just came out with University of Texas Press just earlier this year in 2023. Uh, Welcome to the New Books Network, Erica. Good to have you here. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. Why don't we begin, as we always do on the show, by just hearing a little bit about who you are. Can you tell us a bit about your background? And I'm especially interested in what got you interested in history in the first place. Um, Okay. Thank you for that question. That's an interesting place to start. Um, Historians always say all history is personal, so a little bit of personal background is always useful, I guess. Um, I grew up in Salt Lake City, Utah, um, in a... um, both my parents have immigrant backgrounds. My father was an immigrant from Germany. My mother's family were Italian immigrants. Um, so, you know, sort of this becomes actually an important part of the book. Um, what my family's relationship to the place I wrote about was. Uh, I went to the University of Utah. Then I got my PhD at Rutgers. And I think the thing that sort of sparked my interest in history was actually the history I was taught when I was in, you know, junior high and high school did not actually match the history, my family's history. So kind of two immigrant stories to the American West that didn't really resonate so much in what I was reading about, but I, and I didn't, you know, history wasn't super engaging, but what was really engaging was kind of history around the kitchen table where, you know, the older generations would sit around telling stories uh, about, you know, migrating to the United States. My father and his family came in 1953, family of four with, um, you know, everything that the family could hold could bring in basically a few suitcases. Um, Growing up in wartime Germany, there's a really interesting kind of religious history there where the LDS church actually sponsored them to come to the United States and then found a sponsor for them in Uh, Salt Lake City, Utah, they had converted to, my grandparents had converted to Mormonism uh, in 1929, so pre-war Germany. Uh, So they had a kind of long-standing relationship with the LDS church. There's also interesting wartime stories about where where LDS people fit in Germany uh, during that time period. My father was not a convert to the LDS faith, so I grew up actually non-Mormon. He married my mother, family of Italian immigrants, and um, they had come to be coal miners in southeastern Utah. Um, so hearing those stories about what it was like uh, to live, you know, to move from Germany to the United States to experience war time, to um, immigrate from southern Italy, Calabria, basically, to southern Utah. Um, All of these things kind of sparked my, you know, awareness that the past was really relevant and shaped people. 
often when I ask my guests that question, I get some sort of answer that is, that is you know, in, in some way kind of shaped like what you said, where people are realizing that the history that they're, that they're learning in school doesn't often match up with the history that they know. And it is, in fact, a very personal thing. So uh, I think that that's the kind of origin story for a lot of historians, in fact. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, I'm curious also what brought you to the topic of this book. Why a book that is about uh, Glen Canyon Dam and this region? And I'm curious in particular, since you talk a bit about this in the book itself, what's your personal connection to this place? So um, the pers- my personal connection to that place, you know, kind of has multiple answers. So the first one is... Um, my first book was called Indian Made Navajo Culture in the Marketplace, and it sort of tracked uh, Navajo or Diné's engagement with the modern American marketplace through the production and consumption of Navajo or Indian made goods. So rugs, jewelry, etc. And it's really a, you know, an interesting history about how those goods became commercialized and prized by white American consumers and how their makers were sort of treated in relationship. And there were some kind of interesting ironies there. And as a result of that, doing that research, I spent a lot of time, you know, driving, doing research on the Navajo reservation and communities adjacent to the Navajo reservation, interviewing traders. And as I was finishing up that book, Um, I was doing a final set of interviews in Page, Arizona, and I happened to call my dad on a research trip, and he said, oh, where are you? And I said, oh, I'm at Page. And he's like, oh, okay, as you're leaving Page, I want you to drive over Glen Canyon Dam, and when you get there, call me. And so, you know, I drove to Glen Canyon Dam, and I'm a Western historian, so these, you know, big infrastructure projects were fascinating to us. I went to college in Utah during the late 80s and early 90s when Ed Abbey was all the rage. So I knew this environmental story of Glen Canyon Dam and the con- how controversial it was. But then my father said, oh, your grandfather helped build that. And I had never heard that in all the stories around the kitchen table that I had heard. I never had heard that he had been an engineer on that project. In fact, um, shortly he immigrated to the United States in 53 and um, by 1954 he was working on the dam. He'd been an engineer by training in Germany. So for me, part of that, you know, was thinking about this place, um, thinking about this place in relation to, which I'd already been thinking about, in relation to the Navajo reservation and if you've never been to the southwest, Glen Canyon Dam sits on the Utah-Arizona border, and it is abutted by the Navajo Reservation and this town called Page, Arizona. So essentially, the dam was built on land um, on the Colorado River, alongside the Colorado River, and that was that the Navajo Nation had to cede back to the government in a land swap. Uh, in order for that dam to be built. And so it kind of, you know, things just kind of merged together where my family's history, I had a direct link to the dam. It had been in my consciousness for a long time as somebody who was interested in water and the West and the environment. And then um, it intersected with my previous book and scholarship. And it got me thinking about the ways in which, while there were literally 
probably thousands, there are probably thousands of books on Glencairn Dam that have been written, uh, maybe, you know, 1500 to 2000. I had never read anything about um, indigenous people's relationship to the dam, or if I had read it, it had been very cursory and very stereotypical. And so the idea for the book came, kind of came out of that, the intersection of those those experiences and ideas. Well, let's get into the book a bit. And why don't we start by just setting the scene a bit here? What are the kind of absolute basics that we should know about Glen Canyon Dam? Where exactly are we talking about? When was this thing built? Why was it built? And why does it matter? Um, Okay, so it's located on the Colorado River up stream from Hoover Dam. So there are two major dams. There are lots of dams on the Colorado River, but there are two major ones. So Hoover Dam was the first one that was built in the 1930s. Um, And Glen Canyon is the second one. The dam was actually proposed in the late 1940s. Construction started in the 1950s and it was finished in the mid 1960s. And the the dam was kind of a brainchild this the story of the dam goes back all the way to the 20s when they were trying to figure out where the first major dam on the Colorado River would go um so the the kind of basic things you need to know about it is this it's the um second largest tallest gravity arch dam in the United States it's um has 5 million cubic yards of concrete um, were, you know, went into building the dam, the construction of the dam. Um, it, it provide it's a hydroelectric dam. It provides water and energy to about 40 million people across the United States. So as far east as Nebraska, um, and as far west, uh, as California. So a lot of communities rely directly on the dam. Uh, the other big relevant thing that is important to this story is that the region is currently in a drought, so water is becoming an increased commodity. Even one big snow year, which we had last year, or one year, good year of precipitation, is not going to get the region out of this 100-year drought cycle that it's in. Um, so the water in that Colorado River that is dammed up behind Lake Powell Um, has become increasingly prized and precious uh, as both a commodity and a resource to keep the region, most of the water is actually used for agriculture, but to kind of keep the region alive. The other really important thing to set the scene for the dam, and I have already mentioned the Navajo Nation, the that when the Colorado River Compact was signed, which was a compact between the seven states, the lower and upper basin states, um, when they signed this compact and they divided up the water of the Colorado River, they completely excluded all of the indigenous people who lived in the region and who had even by right treaty rights to the Colorado River, including Navajo Nation, the Paiute, and then all the other tribes, um, you know, up and downstream as well. So those are just some basics that are kind of important to the overarching story of the dam. 
And this is also a very old place in terms of human history as well. So what is the history of people in this part of North America? Who has lived here historically? Why does this place matter so much to these indigenous societies that uh, historically have and still do call this place home? Um, That's an excellent question. And I will not attempt to answer for indigenous people, but I will give some, some basic background. Um, that is really important to understand. Um, a lot of indigenous people in the region, the Navajo, the Hopi, the Ute, the Paiute, the Zuni, etc., um, claim the region of the Southwest as their homeland, their place of in- emergence, um, where they have been and lived since in their often a phrase that's used in indigenous cultures is since time immemorial. So since before there was a sort of time, there are tens of thousands of archeological sites all throughout this region that demonstrate the long history of human habitation in the region. Um, So the, the river is considered sacred. There are various mountains and um, geological features within the region that are considered sacred. Um, the land itself um, is considered sacred, a cosmological homeland, an ancestral homeland, a cultural homeland, a political homeland um, for indigenous people. And so um, the book f- focuses primarily on the Ute. Um, Paiute and Navajo. So for those, all of those cultures have a claim to the area of the Colorado Plateau as an ancestral spirit and and a spiritual homeland. But like all of the American West, of course, yes. um, that's 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 not the only history at play here, right? You have these overlapping people histories of of this place. So, can you talk a bit about the LDS history of this area? Maybe describe the history of indigenous dispossession during the kind of mid to late nineteenth century. Uh, yeah, that's um, that's a really interesting question. So, exactly right. Like all of the history of the West, um, and especially places with water in the American West, those places became very desirable, very desired by settlers. And LDS migrants were fleeing their, a form of fleeing, they were persecuted and they were fleeing that persecution and moving, you know, sort of sequentially West. It's not exactly that simple, but they move essentially from, um, you know, New York, Vermont, Missouri, Utah. And um, Brigham Young is the leader who essentially um, brings his flock or his followers to the Salt Lake City Valley. And when he's there, he kind of declares this is the place. um, And this is where they're going to settle. And it's a sort of famous moment in LDS history when they get to their Zion, right? Their spiritual homeland. Uh, Angelo Baca is, um, has an interesting phrase. He is a Navajo um, tribal historian and cultural studies professor at um, Rhode Island School of Design, RISD. He's a filmmaker. He has a great phrase that describes what happens um, in this case. And he says, displaced people displace people. So we have one group of displaced people, the LDS migrants, moving into 
a land already inhabited by um, indigenous people, um, Utes, Paiutes, Navajos, and they begin to displace them in a pretty systematic way. Uh, in their mind, it is not ill-intended, but the consequences are disastrous for the indigenous people. Um, and they are really influenced by, I, you know, ideas about race, about civilization that are circulating um, in American culture more broadly about where indigenous people fit. They come up with their own, they have their own um, theology about who indigenous people are, where they fit in terms of um, LDS uh, ideas, in terms of the Book of Mormon, etc. Um, and they use all of those ideas to fuel actions, which, you know, ultimately displace indigenous peoples of their land. They don't consult really with indigenous people. There's a little bit of that. Um, you know, mostly it's, they, you know, and I, I do a very detailed telling of these kinds of stories in the book where LDS settlers move into northern Utah and then Brigham Young almost immediately sends settlers out to establish uh, satellite colonies in um, up through Idaho and then down through Arizona to create um, what was called by the LDS Church, even by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, a Mormon corridor, a sort of a, a corridor, a safe corridor. They also sent missionaries to um, Hawaii, to California, etc. So really, you know, they were proselytizing throughout the region. But Brigham Young wanted these colonies to kind of protect the main colony in Salt Lake City. And so he sends people almost immediately to Southern and Southeastern Utah. And there they come into contact like they do in Northern Utah with in increasing numbers of indigenous people. They don't initially try to convert them. They do often trade with them. They think they've struck in some ways what in, by the in the minds of the LDS settlers, you know, they say, can we settle here? The indigenous people, especially the Southern Paiute, um, allow them to settle the Paiute don't understand that they mean permanently um, so there are lots of cases where interactions between LDS settlers and um, Utes and Paiutes go something along the lines of can we settle here yes but don't bring any more people here and the LDS settlers say okay and then they bring more people and it leads to tension um, fighting conflict um, often death. So it's a kind of story that is very similar to what happens in cross, across the entire United States. From the perspective of indigenous people, the indigenous people of the region are being, you know, white settlers are coming to Colorado, they're coming to Arizona, they're coming to um, Idaho, Montana, etc. They're sort of being surrounded on all sides by increased settlement. They've already experienced waves of settlement in New Mexico and Arizona of uh, Spanish um, settlement. So it's they're not unfamiliar with what happens when newcomers arrive in their region. Um, it just opens up a new era. This era of LDS settlement opens up a new era of that of settler colonialism for or settler colonization for them when it occurs. 
So you have indigenous people who have been in this place since time immemorial, and then you have um, LDS settlers coming here in the mid to late 19th century. And then you also have the U.S. government, which emerges as another major player in this part of the Southwest. So what role does the U.S. government play in claiming this space for American settlers? And in particular, as we get into the early 20th century, I'm curious about the role of science and how Mm. new and emerging ideas, excuse me, new and emerging ideas about science kind of undergird a lot of the arguments that government officials and others are making in justification for taking this land um yes okay so the settlers the LDS settlers are a little bit different than some other settler groups because they're actually in conflict with the U.S. government and Brigham Young one of the things he wants to do is to kind of use indigenous peoples as a buffer zone between the LDS church who are practicing polygamy and the U.S. government who has outlawed polygamy. So he, Utah is initially its own territory, the Beehive um, territory. It's sort of its own nation. Um, that quickly goes away. I'm shorthanding that entire history. Um, and they, they outlaw polygamy. They become a... T- territory then they become a state and as that is happening as that process is unfolding um the government is sending not only military agents and indian agents but they're sending explorers um you know they're creating the usgs the u.s geological survey they're creating the bureau of american ethnology um so there's a direct overlap between government efforts to shore up the white settlement of the American West to survey the region's resources, um, which is what they're doing with the USGS. How much water is there? How much land is there? How many, what kinds of minerals are there? Is there gold? Is there silver? Um, Etc. How much water is there? And so they send people like John Wesley Powell, who is the sort of famed um, Civil War hero. He loses an arm during the Civil War. Um, and then he, um, by the 1860s, late 1860s, is the first person to navigate the length of the Colorado River. Um, he does it in, you know, a couple of different um, trips uh, with a team in these wooden boats. The Colorado River is, you know, the, they call it the mighty Colorado. Um, it is formidable it is dangerous uh etc and so john wesley powell goes out to survey the entire region and while he's there he comes into contact with indigenous people he hires them to guide him across the country to figure out where they're getting um uh, potable water when they're moving across the desert where to find food how to get resources etc so the government is kind of complicit well the government supports the settlement uh of the region white settlement of the region they there's a little bit of animosity though there's animosity between lds settlers and the u.s government john wesley powell doesn't love the mormons but he loves their settlements he talks um effusively about the way that they're able to grow food in this harsh desert region the way that they are irrigating their crops um he goes to 
a lot of these smaller LDS settlements and speaks very highly of them. Um, but John Wesley Powell is also, you know, has uh, ideas about how water should be used, and he doesn't actually think the nation's plan for moving water to people as opposed to moving people to water um, is the best plan. So the government actually plays a number of different roles. Um, after John Wesley Powell, there are subsequent iterations of surveys in across the region, especially the region of the Colorado Plateau, um, where various scholars, educators, scientists move throughout the region documenting, attempting to survey and document the region's resources. And whereas Powell worked directly with indigenous people, we start to see the erasure of their presence. And one really interesting thing about the whole settlement of the region and its relationship to um, both settlers and scientists is one of the first things that settlers do when they move into the especially arid regions of the plateau is they look for evidence of prior settlement or evidence of existing settlement and then they look to see to how people either got their water or were getting their water and then those are exactly the places where they chose to settle and displace people so um, they they literally sometimes build their settlements right on top of earlier indigenous settlements where there were already irrigation ditches or um, earth barrier dams uh, etc and then they bring their own irrigating know-how and they learn from indigenous people by studying the past um, to irrigate the region even further. So the, the scientists actually document the ancient irrigation channels um, in their words. There's a, a sort of famous um, geologist, Herbert Gregory, who does a whole survey of what he names Navajo country. Um, you know, he's naming the rock layers, he's naming um, the regions, he's collecting names of the region uh, from indigenous people. So there's a whole bunch of exploration that goes on during this time period that's meant um, to shore up the white settlement of the region. That is its express purpose. And if I remember correctly, that's how the city of Phoenix, Arizona gets its name, is that it's uh, uh, the city that's kind of, in the words of the settlers, rising from the so-called ashes of the previous <laughs> irrigated settlement that had been there before. Um, but, you know, someone check me on that because I'm just thinking off the top of my head here, but I'm pretty sure that that's a, it's a very similar story from another part of the Southwest as well. Yeah, I think it's a story that happens um, frequently in the Southwest, mm -hmm. but it gets kind of, by the 1950s, the... Um, the governor of the state of Utah, actually, a, a man named George Dewey Clyde, he actually credits the settlers with being the first and best irrigators in the region. And, you know, if you are thinking through through the lens of indigenous people and native history, or if you are an indigenous people, you know that indigenous people have been living and irrigating in that region for a long, long time, like you know, long before the white settlers arrived. So there's some, you know, there's, there's a lot that we can unpack there. We've been talking about uh, water 
Uh, and, you know, we're talking about a dam. So, of course, water is, is really important to this story. And this is, in, in many ways, an environmental story and environmental history. Can we, or excuse me, can you tell us a little about uh, the ecology of the region? And maybe to contextualize this a bit, I'm wondering how American officials in the kind of early to mid 20th century, as people are beginning to eye potential sites for a dam in this region, how are they thinking about questions of ecology? and aridity and water um, and how can we compare this to the way that indigenous people are thinking about the land that was a kind of a big unwieldy question yeah that I, is I a big, it sense. yeah it's a big question <laughs> um, let's see where it takes us um, well the first you know first thing we can think about is Powell um, we'll start we'll start with the non-indigenous and then we'll go to the indigenous views um, Powell gets to the region and I alluded to this earlier, Powell comes, you know, he goes back, he draws a watershed map. It's a beautiful image. I don't know if you have images on your podcast, but it's it's one that you could include. But um, he draws a map, which is basically a watershed map. And he's like, look, we have drawn, we have configured the territories this, for the states in the West all wrong. We should configure them um, around watersheds in the region. And Congress is like, nope we already you know we already drew those nice square lines we're not gonna build settlements around watersheds we're gonna engineer our way out of this problem and by the early 20th century they have created the bureau of reclamation which has biblical overtones its name of reclaiming water has biblical overtones and the idea is to reclaim the waters of the american west and move them to where people, white settlers, are um, are moving uh, to. So, um, you know, they're thinking about the ecology of, or they're thinking about the environment of the West largely as an engineering problem to be overcome. How can we engineer our way out of the limitations of this particular environment? Indigenous people, the Navajo, the Paiute, um, the Hopi, the Zuni, etc., do engage in some engineering of their environments um, on a different scale, on a how do we get enough water for our community? How do we have enough resources for our community to feed our communities? How do we um, respect the environment so we are not radically you know, altering the flow of a river, you might divert part of the river into an irrigation ditch, you don't dam up the river. And um, as I was finishing up the book, um, you know, I was having conversations with some of the, you know, um, Navajo leaders within the community. Um, and one of them, Mark Maryboy said, we never would have done that. We never would have dammed up the Colorado River. And in fact, it is the the impeding of the flow um, of the Colorado River um, is actually one of the reasons why our community is out of balance. So the idea of living in balance with nature is is a kind of guiding principle for indigenous people in the region. And it's one that is deeply 
undone by the actions of the white settlers, right? They view the environment as a resource to be tapped. Um, resources become commodities that can become bought and sold and can generate wealth for communities. And that's very different from how indigenous people were um, were interacting with the environment. So how does this project actually come together? Can you describe a bit about the process of designing and building the dam itself? And, you know, so much of this is sort of about how people are thinking about these things. So I'm also curious, what does its construction mean for the various stakeholders involved? How are indigenous people in the moment, at the time in this region, seeing and thinking about and viewing, engaging its construction? And then how are American settlers doing the same? Um, okay, so there are the there's the practicalities of you have a whole team of engineers and scientists who survey the landscape. They figure out where to place the dams for maximum energy production. Um, so there's that story and lots of people have told that story. And that is the kind of um, dominant story of the dam. The thing that interested me was in order for all those things to happen, for you to get engineers on the ground, for you to get lots of settlers moving to the region who would need these resources, um, to have this kind of growth mindset, if we build this dam, we can produce all this electricity, which can go to places like Phoenix, um, which means we can build more houses, which means more people can move to a place like Phoenix, which means we'll need more energy, which means we'll need, you know, so that ongo that growth cycle, um, all of that is um, undergirded by a system and way of thinking which I call infrastructures of dispossession. So the dam is not the only, inf the dam is a physical infrastructure that sim symbolizes these other metaphorical infrastructures of dispossession. Um, so those would be the religious ideas underpinning the settlement of the region, um, both Christian and LDS. Um, the whole idea of manifest destiny and then LDS um, migrants moving into the region. So religion becomes a kind of justification for taking the land of indigenous people. Um, so you have to have that piece in place. Then you have to have um, the government piece, the kind of political infrastructure in place that will send, you know, you have to have this body that has the both the financial and political will to remake the region in really fundamental ways um, for the purposes of um, the construction of the dam. So we have religious, political, scientific infrastructures, right? You have to have um, a burgeoning field of engineering. Uh, you know, Hoover Dam and Glen Canyon Dam are monumental features. They were the biggest you know, that the the work that went into building these dams, designing them, um, you know, is astonishing. The government is sending engineers on trips all around the world to look at these other infrastructure projects, these other dams, to see if we could build something like Hoover or um, Glen Canyon. And then they just do it, right? There are no environmental impact statements. There's no um, questioning whether or not this should be done. 
Um, so that becomes an infrastructure of dispossession as well, that, you know, that sort of scientific knowledge. And all of these things kind of culminate in the construction of Glen Canyon Dam. And people at that time begin asking questions about the environmental impact of this dam. So should we be doing this on this scale? So Glen Canyon Dam is most famous for that, for the fact that David Brower and the Sierra Club um, really looked into, um, a little late, but all, they eventually got there, um, what this place Glen Canyon was, um, should it be dammed up, uh, what were the, how would it change the region in terms of how would it change the water temperature, how would it change the ecology, um, how would it change um, all of these different things. The environmentalists do not involve the indigenous people right away. Um, but one of my very favorite quotes from when I was doing research, and it's something that I always talk about with my students, is that this is the moment when people begin to question that growth mentality, that because we can engineer it, we should do it mentality. Um, so David, um, or Richard Bradley, um, his brother David is also an activist, um, is a physics professor at Colorado College and he you know gives a speech where he basically says look we could train engineers to drain the Atlantic Ocean but we should also train them to ask should we be doing that and he makes this case that engineers and scientists who kind of come up with these things are basically policy makers and their infrastructure is enacting policy in ways that completely remake regions and so we also have, you know, indigenous people speaking out. Um, Navajo Nation engages in that land swap. They give the federal government the land to build the dam. The government gives them promises about what they're going to get for participating in the construction of the dam. They're going to get jobs. They do get some jobs building the dam. They're going to get concessions. They don't get as many of those as they want. They're going to get um, uh, water and electricity. They don't get those things uh, to the extent that they think they're going to give them. Um, so, you know, indigenous people have to navigate all of these infrastructures that are designed to dispossess them of their land at throughout this whole process. And the deck is stacked against them. And that's why the final chapter in the book is really a court case where it demonstrates <clears throat> that indigenous people have fought, you know, if we look at this as, if we think about this as kind of layers in the landscape, kind of geological layers, <clears throat> they're literally fighting against this foundation of dispossession and attempting to, through the courts, use the courts to protect their natural sites, their locations, their resources that are spiritually, culturally, and ancestrally significant to them. But to do that, they have to use the courts and the courts get to go back in the case that I look at, um, it's called the Bodoni case. Um, and it's sometimes called the Rainbow Bridge um, case where Rainbow Bridge is spiritually significant for Navajos, um, especially those living in around the Navajo mountain area, which is adjacent to Rainbow Bridge. Rainbow Bridge is um, a national monument, but if you look at where it's at, it's you know right along the, <clears throat> the um the 
the borders of Glen Canyon National Recreation Area. It's right smack dab in the middle of that region where all this development is happening. And Navajo Nation is trying to, or residents from Navajo Nation are trying to get that protected from all this construction from the waters. They don't want the waters of Lake Powell to um, back up under Rainbow Bridge. Um, and, you know, they eventually form an alliance with environmentalists environmentalists do that right at the last minute um they pursue this court case and the courts basically say you don't have any legal rights to this because um you don't have legal standing because this isn't your land well if we go back through the historical records it was their land and even the federal government at different points recognized it was their land but when it became a national monument it was cut out of the navajo reservation or the um Paiute territory, it went back and forth between the two tribes without consulting indigenous people. So the court gets to say like, sorry, you don't have any standing. And then they say, well, we have freedom of religion. We've worshiped there for a long time. And then the judge in the case, whose name is Alden Anderson, who is the descendant of LDS settlers who moved into that region, who were the first people to settle, he says, well, you don't have a... Um, you don't have a religion. Um, a religion would be you worship at this place at a, you know, the same time every single year or same times every single week. You don't have um, a seminary where you're training these individuals in these religious ceremonies. Therefore, you don't have a religion. So that's where religion comes in as one of those infrastructures of dispossession that indigenous people are, you know, it's embedded into our law. So each one of these layers of the infrastructure of dispossession is embedded into the dam and the dam becomes symbolic of the white settlement of the region and the indigenous dispossession of the region. That was a really long answer to that question. <laughs> that, that's okay. I'm asking really big questions. Yeah, you're, that's um, a big question. <laughs> <laughs> so what are the politics of Glen Canyon Dam today and in the more recent past? I mean, you know, over the course of especially the late 20th century, you have all kinds of protests and movements and activism around questions of native sovereignty and over land back. They're just growing louder and louder over the course of especially the second half of the 20th century and into the 21st century. So how does Glen Canyon emerge as sort of a, a central point or a nexus of a lot of these questions? What are, again, the politics of this uh, uh, in the early 21st and late 20th century? So I think one of the interesting things is Glen Canyon Dam has really not necessarily emerged as a nexus um, for those political debates. Um, I think it could be and potentially should be. Um, the, the way we see it come up most often is in terms of water so who is going to get the water uh, that's in lake powell um, will any of the 40 tribes who have um, treaty rights to any of the waters of the colorado river um, be able to get their claim the supreme court just heard a case from navajo nation about whether or not they were entitled to some of the water from the colorado river because of a phrase about um you know, a guaranteed homeland. Um, interestingly enough, for everybody else, a homeland in the West meant 
the government was going to provide them with water, right, which is how we got the dam. But when it comes to indigenous people, the Supreme Court basically decided that a homeland does not guarantee water. To have a home in the region does not necessarily guarantee you're going to have water in the region. So those water rights um, are, I think, you know, we know for a long time they've been the hot button point. <laughs> they've been the, you know, the famous saying, um, whiskey is for drinking and water is for fighting <laughs> over um, about the American West. I think we're going to see a lot more fights culminate around water. There have been, um, the Navajo Nation is doing an amazing job um, uh, thinking, training um, young scholars in both the ancestral knowledge about the significance of the water and um, making sure that there are scholars, there are um, scientists who understand how the watershed works, how the river works, and um, getting a seat at the table in these discussions. But even, you know, last year when it was the 100th anniversary of the Colorado River Compact, um, there were not a lot of indigenous people invited to the table to discuss the future of Glen Canyon Dam. There are places um, like Glen Canyon Institute that are doing a good job uh, reaching out now to indigenous people and thinking about the future of Glen Canyon. It probably is not feasible to have two major dams on the Colorado River, Hoover and Glen Canyon. So there's there's always been a movement to drain Glen Canyon Dam at Abbey and you know Dave Brower started that you know get rid of that dam it's an unnecessary dam it sullied you know one of the most beautiful places in the American West now that movement is really like there's not a need for this dam anymore one dam could you know would probably be enough for the region but that region is going to have to change its ideas about water use and electricity and of course climate change is is really complicating all of this and indigenous people are incredibly vulnerable they're often the last to get electricity in the book i chronicle that um, lots of the navajo nation does not have running water they don't have access to running water they you know truck in their water so you know water is the i think water is the the kind of key here and how indigenous people are fighting for and leading efforts to claim that water and they're doing amazing amazing things in that regard so as we begin to wrap up here i i always like to ask my guests to take kind of a different perspective on their book and to put themselves in the shoes of someone who has read their book or a reader of their book and Imagine that they are thinking back on this book from a remove of a year or five years down the down the road. What do you hope this reader would remember from this book or would come away understanding from this book a few years on down the line? That's a good question. I think one thing that would be interesting for them or one one of the takeaways I hope they would have is that you cannot tell the story of Glen Canyon Dam without telling the, the history of indigenous people in the region. That the dam is really representative of a kind of 
um, colonial mindset that mm, didn't always have a place for indigenous people and yet indigenous people are in that place, right? So how have indigenous people, how did they engage with the federal government? How have they attempted to control their resources? What are they doing now to draw attention to the, you know, their their own um, concerns, their own culture, uh, etc. And I think for me, one of the most hopeful episodes in the book it comes from the epilogue where, you know, I chronicle what an infrastructure of dispossession looks like, but I also say, you know, we can look at Bears Ears where indigenous people came together, tribes that, and nations that had traditionally not always gotten along with each other, um, came together, fought for the protection of a sort of sacred homeland, a land that they had, um, that these tribes had all used, um, petitioned the federal government for the creation of a national monument. That's very different from the federal government saying, we're going to put a national monument there and we're going to, now you no longer have access to it, or we're going to build this national park, or we're going to build this big infrastructure project. Um, they argue for the, for the creation of Bears Ears National Monument and they have had a seat at the table from day one. And so even though the book, the dam, the dam kind of stands as a symbol to this era of settler colonialism, there are other models and other ways in which the government and the settler community and indigenous people can come together um, and create more equitable spaces and equitable ways we manage the land. And so I think that's the big that's one of the big takeaways. And then finally, uh, I always like to get a preview from my guests about what they've been working on uh, since the book's release. And sometimes it feels kind of silly because this book has been out for what, about like 90 days <laughs> yeah. or something like that. Um, it's, it's a very, very uh, hot off the presses book. But nonetheless, I know historians and we never just have one project going on at once. So I'm curious, Erica, what you've been working on uh, while this book has been going to print and everything. Um, so I have two projects. Well, I have um, two scholarly projects and one pedagogical project. So I'm working on, so one of the figures in the book um, was a Navajo girl who was kidnapped by Utes in Marble Canyon, the region of Marble Canyon, and then she was traded to other Utes, other bands of Utes, and then she was traded to soldiers at Fort Bridger, and then she was purchased or won in a card game by an LDS patriarch, and then she worked for the patriarch's um, family as an indentured servant um, for his first two wives in sequence, first one wife and their children and then the other wife. And then when she turned 18 and he was um, in his late 50s or early 60s, he married her. Um, the church had outlawed polygamy. Um, the other two wives rejected I don't know him for a variety of reasons, maybe because he married her. That's a little unclear. He seems to have become, you know, estranged from them prior to that. But he takes her to South Dakota and they mine gold or they try to. And then they move back um, to um, uh, southern Utah, to Vernal, Utah, and they actually get an allotment on 
um, the Ute reservation because the LDS community will not have him. And so that is a book, it's a kind of biography of her that I hope will be a short book, so 60,000 words that we could use in classes because it kind of hits on all of the big issues in the American West and Native American history, um, you know, allotment, um, servitude, slavery, conflict, settlement, etc. So that book is called Unsettling Narratives um, about Rose Daniels is her name, the woman's name, and it will focus on her. I have a big book, a big project that I've been working on for a really long time called The Concrete West. Um, and that's um, about how concrete itself has been used to transform the environment of the American West concrete produces about you know 10% of CO2 emissions um, so it's really an environmental history of the West and of concrete itself and then I have a pedagogical project that I've been working on for the past couple of years which is called Cleovis and it is um, digital timeline mind mapping and network visualization software that any instructor can use in their classroom um, uh, it's it's really fun. It's a fun way for students or researchers to engage with their uh, material where you can plot an event on a timeline um, or plot events on a timeline, but then the students can actually draw a connection between the two of them and explain that relationship. And then they these timelines are fully interactive. They're illustrated. You can add audio to them. The students learn how to present with them. So it's a it's a really fun pedagogical project. Um, it's used in all sorts of universities across the United States right now, and I hope some people check it out. Those all sound like fantastic projects. And uh, you and I were talking a little bit about Cleovis uh, before the episode began, and my mind was just racing with all the ways that I could use it in my own classes, my own American West class and everything. So I'm excited to do some experimenting with that myself this coming semester. So thank you for your work on that in particular. Okay, thank you so much. Thanks for your great questions. They were really thoughtful and this was a really fun interview. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, Dr. Erica Basumek is the author of The Foundations of Glen Canyon Dam, Infrastructure of Dispossession on the Colorado Plateau, which is just out with the University of Texas Press, came out earlier this year in 2023. Thank you so much for joining me today, Erica. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you.